0: Thanks, man, for reminding us of God's amazing love. Welcome to the last time we have an 845 service. So please remember next week at 830 we will begin. In fact, as a reminder, as a help for you on your way out today at the information table, there are connection cards. You can use these along with a nice sized tip. Don't, don't communicate to the community of Northwest Arkansas, that we're cheap tippers at Grace Point with a nice size tip at your restaurant today. You can leave it in the, uh, uh, in the restroom at work, wherever you want to leave it, give it to your friends. Uh, but just a little connection card to let them know uh, about the church, but also uh, about, uh, about our, our time changes. Take your Bibles. We find the book of Ephesians, chapter 5. We'll be there in a moment. Please play, pray for me, just coming back from uh, uh, a time of vacation and some time of study. I come back with a cold, and so uh, I've got three services to speak, and so I hope my voice makes it uh, to the very end. Uh, As you think about uh, a question I want to pose before you today, how do you know the worth of something? How do you know the value of something? You own it, you possess it, or you want to own it, or you want to possess it. How can you determine the value of something? I'll tell you a story that I recently heard on the radio about a lady who, uh, uh, a grandmother who was uh, gathering up some toys for her grandchildren that were coming to her house, and so she went to a neighborhood garage sale and, and just started picking up some toys that were there and found this box of uh, just this little uh, accessory kind of jewelry thing, with, you know, plastic earrings and this and that and necklaces and rings and, and everything like that. So she just picks it up, and, and the box just said, Everything in here, 25 cents. So she takes it up, and she says, How about you just take the whole box? I'll take the whole box. It said, Five dollars. Just take it, and you could just take it all. And so she gets home, and she starts cleaning it like the grandmother before the grandchildren start putting it in their mouth and swallowing it. And so she starts uh, cleaning it all up, and she picks up this one ring that was heavier than the others that looked a little shinier than the others. And come to find out what she got for 25 cents or less than that, she got a diamond ring that she ended up taking to an appraiser and had an appraiser that was worth several hundreds of dollars that she got for $5 at best. And So if you think about that, here's this lady and she she just struck it rich. I don't think she let the grandkids play with that one. I don't know. But that's something that sometimes we have things that are of great value but we don't know the value of them. Or we just ignore the value of them. Or we neglect to take care of what's valuable. Here's something that I hold in my possession that has been passed down for at least four generations as, as far as we can count back. This is an old Civil War Bible that has been passed down. to Now it's in, in my possession. And I was on eBay last night, not to sell it, but just to try to see what other Bibles of the same St. error were, were priced at. It was interesting to find that this is actually worth something here. But you know, what is it worth? How do you know what it's worth? I mean, I found Bibles on eBay from $5,000 to a few pennies that were historical Bibles. How do you know when you have something of worth? How do you know when you have something of value that maybe you've just thrown into a box of 25 cents plastic Play jewelry, that really it's worth a whole lot. How do you know when you have something of value? I want to ask you that as it pertains to your church. Now, if you're first time with us today, then this Bible, you wouldn't call Grace Point your church yet. You're either moving into the area you're in the process of looking for a church. So welcome to Grace Point Church. It may be hard to assess this or to put a value on it, but let me ask those of you who are regularly a part of Grace Point to ask you, what is the value that you can place on this church? The value to your life. There are several options. You can take it or leave it. Maybe that's you. or It's good for the kids, and it's just okay for me. The kids need the spiritual development, so I'm going to take them, drop them off, and I don't have anything else to do, so I'm just going to sit in a worship service. Maybe that's you. Maybe it challenges me, but it hasn't changed me. I come and I hear from time to time there's a thought-provoking idea that's presented, and, and it challenges me, or a song that's sang, and it, it inspires me, but it hasn't really changed me. Maybe you're one of those who, like the, uh, the, the MasterCard commercial, you would say it's prices. It's not only challenging me to live at a higher standard, to operate on a different plane than just the normal attitudes of, of life, but it's actually challenging me and it's helping to change my life and make it better. Now, where are you on that scale? And you can mark that, and I don't need to see your worship guide afterwards or how you write Grace Point or, or whatever, but let that be something that you start developing an assessment of value on this church in your life and your family's life. Or if you're from out of town, the value of the church that you're with, that you call home. I love what Neil Cole says about the church in his book, Organic Church. He says, the church is conceived in heaven before it is born on earth. It must first be a glimmer of our Father's eye. Is, 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 my, is my church, is the church that I identify with, the church that I attend, is it a 25-piece, 25 25-cent 25 piece of jewelry? Or is it something that's an heirloom that will be passed down from one generation to the next generation to the next generation? Is it something of great value that I'm going to hold on to and cherish from one generation to the next. If you find Ephesians chapter 5, you find a passage of scripture in, in the last part of five, chapter 5 where Paul is talking about marriage. But it's really interesting because he really has two messages interwoven, laid on top of one another as you look at Ephesians 5. And beginning in verse 22, whenever you look at this passage, you will find that there are actually two messages going on sequential, at the same time, running parallel to one another. Because what he's doing is he's comparing what a healthy marriage looks like, listen to this, to what a healthy church looks like. And when you look at what a healthy church is, then hopefully you can look at what a healthy marriage is. And as you see the relationship between husband and wife, you will also look at the relationship between Jesus and His church. And hopefully as we run parallel through life, because really we do, we're in here, we're sitting next to families, that hopefully as we run parallel through life will we constantly be looking at ourselves the way Jesus sees His bride, the church, and the way we men see our brides in our marriages. So it's a beautiful challenging sign or whatever if your marriage needs to challenge or if it's the church and the understanding of the church because there's one thing that I want you to absolutely get out of this message today is that Jesus Christ is madly in love with us. I I personally requested that song, that last song that we sang, because it just emphasizes again and again and again the love relationship that Jesus has with those that He calls His bride. And it's not just Paul who calls it His bride. It's actually also in the book of uh, Revelation in chapter 18, 19, 21, and 22. Every one of those identifies the bride of Christ and the church as being the same. Now, so let's follow along as you read this passage with me in Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 22 to verse 27. Wives, be subject to your husbands, as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is also the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church, there it is again, is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives as Christ also loved the church. You see the comparison. As He's speaking on marriage, He's comparing that to drawing a parallel to the the relationship between the church and Jesus Christ. Just as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself up for her so that He might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word that He might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that he would be that she would be holy and blameless. I hope we understand today that what Jesus is saying about a marriage is it's a love relationship. And then what Jesus is saying about the church and His bride, it's a love relationship. If we have institutionalized the church and so organized the church and so orchestrated the church that there's no longer a love relationship between Jesus and ourselves, then we are way, way, way off base. That the love relationship that a husband and wife must nurture and carry through life and grow and mature and must guard and cherish and honor, that is the same way we must understand our relationship with the church. That there's a tremendous value placed on the church in God's economy. And sometimes I think we develop this take it or leave it mentality. Or if I don't like it there, I'll just run down the street. Problem is the problems and the attitudes follow you wherever you go. What we have to understand is what is the church? What is it about? I never thought that I would be able to say what I'm going to say to you today, from the feelings that I had on on December 29, 1990. When I stood at the altar of the church and I I gave my life and Lori gave her life to me in marriage and we've been married now happily, not every moment happily, but happily overall in the sum total of things. We have been married and we have this love relationship. And I wouldn't tell you today, I would have thought on that day that I could love her any more than I loved her on that day. But I love her more today and I can't live without her more today than ever before. We think alike. We feel alike. I even tell her at times, we're dangerous for one another. Because when we cop a toot on something, you know what? She has the same attitude that I have about it. And we can pull each other down. So we've got to constantly be looking at our marriage relationship as this developing, growing, maturing, increasing in love. What about that to the church? If Jesus and Paul are going to make this comparison between the love relationship here ought to be growing and maturing, what about our love for the church? What about our love for our family? God is madly in love with us. He's madly in love with us enough that He sent Jesus to die for us. And, and Jesus is madly in love with us that He calls us His bride, the church. Now, as we think about the church today, I think we need to take a big picture look at it today. And a couple of points that I want to give you real quickly. Number one, we need to understand two perspectives of it. One is the universal connection of the church. What is this connected thing that keeps us all together? Because we must fully understand that the church is far bigger, far greater of an influence and far more lasting than the Rotaries Club, the Optimist Club, or some of these other great organizations out there. The church, as I, as I am defining it, is a gathering of fully surrendered baptized followers of Jesus Christ, who live on mission to the world until Christ returns for His bride. We are fully surrendered. We're a gathering of fully surrendered, baptized followers. That baptism is like putting on a wedding ring. I'm identifying with the world that I'm married. But when I am baptized, I'm identifying with the world that I am a follower of Christ and I am married to Him. And then what I'm doing is I'm coming together with other people of like mind and like faith. We may not all think the same, believe the same, act the same way, buy the same things, live the same, but we are coming together under the common ground that we are followers of Jesus Christ. And we are not just followers. We are on a mission in our following Him. And I only have time today to develop that fully, completely. But we are on a mission until Christ returns and comes for His bride. That is what we're about. Another key passage, just to kind of log in your mind, is Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. Because that's a key passage to understanding the, the introduction of the church. And the last message I shared a few weeks ago was on Matthew 16, so you might go back and listen to it. But there's one verse and there's one phrase in there that I didn't have time to develop. It's a verse in there, it says this, and it says, I also say to you that you are Peter and upon this rock I will build my church. Now I developed that, but the next phrase I didn't develop that Sunday, it says, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Now for the longest time in my life of growing up in church, and I went to church nine months before I was born, all I know is going to church. And so as I grew up and I heard that phrase, I would think, okay, I can run to the church, I can run to believers, and that's a safe place for me to go. Because... Satan can't get me when I'm with believers. I've seen more of the devil with believers sometimes than I have other places. So I know that that's not right. You know? The, the reality is that, that this is not a defensive statement. That, hey, if we'll all come together in this great big holy huddle, we'll say, us four no more shut the door. We'll get in our holy little huddle here. And I tell you what, we'll be happy and Satan can't get us. Mm-mm. The idea there, and it wasn't until I went to and One of my Bible professors said this. He said, that is actually an offensive verse. The idea is that Satan does not want us to advance. Satan does not want us to push forward. Satan does not want us to make a difference in this world. Satan does not want us to to be on mission and to live on mission. And so he's going to do everything he can to build up barriers in our life, to build up mentalities and attitudes and perspectives that we're going to just go into ourselves and protect our little selves. But really what we need to be doing is realizing that Satan can't stop us. We need to advance the kingdom of God. We need to be about that. That's the mission that we are supposed to live. I think Reggie McNeil got it well when he said this. He said, North America church faces a critical decision. The decision is about what the agenda of the church will pursue. Now listen to this. The choice is clear. The options are two. Thinking and doing church as a refuge or thinking and doing church as mission. And we must understand, what is the biblical perspective? Are we just a holy huddle? Are we actually an army advancing here? Into the darkness. I mean, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus makes it very clear of what our scope and our strategy of mission is. That we are to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. He gives it to us there. He gives us the power source in the presence of His Holy Spirit. Acts 1 8 is a very key verse to understand. And you know what happened? Things begin to unfold. When God's Spirit comes on the scene, 3,000 people are saved in Acts chapter 2. In one day, one message. Amazing. One message, 3,000 people are saved. Today there will be 3,000 messages preached and one person may get saved. That day was a powerful day. It was a life-changing day for a lot of people. And the church at that point began to advance. It was interesting. All on that day, everyone who became a believer were Jews. Only Jews were believers at that point. Followers of Jesus receiving the Holy Spirit on that day. It was a powerful day. You could read it in your own time. But in Acts chapter 10 comes along in Cornelius, an Italian cohort, he was the first non-Jew to become a believer of Christ. You can read about that in Acts chapter 10. And then in Acts chapter 15, it was the first council of Jerusalem that occurred whenever the believers came together. This is about 39 A.D. when they came together. And they had this dissension over, over what was going to be, who was going to be a believer and who could be a believer and, and what was going to be that sign of believer and, uh, and, and all that kind of stuff. And so at, at, that, at that point it's like, okay, you have to be circumcised to be a believer. Well, the Gentiles hadn't been circumcised You'd be a grown man facing that kind of decision in life. That's a big decision. Alright, so here he is. He's Okay, are you going to follow Christ? You're going to have to be circumcised. You're going to have to be like us. And they determined that for the last sake of time, they determined on that day that it would not be circumcision that would be the seal, that, that, that identification point on believers anymore. It would be baptism. Baptism would be that seal, that mark. And from that point forward, not only did they determine in that Jerusalem council that it would be not only Christianity and Christ was for the Jews, but it was for the entire world. And at that point, things take off. At that point, things began to really change. In 42 A.D., Mark goes to Egypt. In 49, Paul goes to Turkey. In 51, Paul goes to Greece. In 52, Thomas heads to India. In fifty four, Paul's third missionary journey begins. It just keeps growing. And in one seventy four, the first Christians were found and discovered in Austria. In two in two hundred eighty, the first Christian knowledge of excuse me, first written knowledge of rural churches in northern Italy. Until now, up until this point, it was only an urban faith. It was only you had to be in the major metropolitan areas. But here, there were believers in rural areas. For 170 years, it was only an urban faith. In 350, there were 3.7 million Christians. 53% of the Roman Empire were followers of Christ. The early church did not see that phrase, the gates of hell will not prevail against you, as a defensive holy huddle calling they saw it as an advancing the troops. It's time to move out. It's time to live on mission. In 432, St. Patrick's uh, uh, heads to Ireland. We celebrate this every year by getting smashed and going around and peaching each other. Unless you're wearing green, of course. In 596, Gregory of the Great sends Augustine and a team of missionaries to England. The missionaries settle in Canterbury and baptize 10,000 people in two years. In 635, the first missionaries arrived in China. In 740, Irish monks were in Iceland. In 900, missionaries reached Norway. In 1200, the Bible became available in 22 different languages. In 1498, the first believers were known to be in Kenya. In 1554, 1500 converts were found and discovered in Thailand. In 1630, there's an attempt to establish a mission in El Paso, Texas, to, reach among, to, to be among the Mesa Indians. In 1743, David uh, Brainerd starts a ministry to reach the Native American community. And in 1818, the first Baptist church is established in Pocahontas, Arkansas. Salem Baptist Church, it does not exist anymore. However, the work continues on because it was in 1842 that Twelve Corners Baptist Church was established in northwest Arkansas. And to this day, Twelve Corners Baptist Church is meeting on its land. Not the same building, but the same land that it's met on since 1842. In 1845, the Southern Baptist Convention started and has become the largest mission-sending agency in the world, both to North America and internationally. In 2001, Grace Point Church was born. Actually, I didn't say it was founded in the year 2000 in Zambia. Whenever Lori and I knew that we were coming back to start a church and we were just simply in our little house in Zambia and we moved to Rogers, Arkansas. On June of 2001, we began. And in 2007, we started our first church in Mali, West Africa, among a Muslim-dominated culture. And to this day, they're beginning to reproduce themselves into another village. And in 2009 and 10, I believe that God is going to lead us to start other churches here locally. Two, maybe three churches that we're going to be a part of launching gatherings of believers in northwest Arkansas. I say all of this to say that a part of a church is about advancing God's kingdom into people's lives. I mean, I think these are broad strokes that just point to a, fa- a fact that this is a God thing, not a man thing. This is not a, a man's invention to be a part of a church. This is a universal move of God that he's been moving throughout the world for many years. Every congregation, Henry Blackaby says in his book, Experiencing God, every congregation is a world missions strategy center. That's powerful. To think that we might be a world mission strategy center. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, "The church is, is the church only when it exists for others. Are we about ourselves? Or are we about others? I say it like this: We're for those who are not yet here. Aren't you glad we didn't stop when you just right before you got here? All right, we are about." being a church for those who are not here. This is the universal work of God that we are a part of. This is the universal church of God. And this is why whenever I I pray for every church I pass between my house and here today, praying that God would bless their churches today as they assemble. There's a second perspective on the church that we must understand. It's that local expression or that context of the church. Every church is, is expressed in a local assembly talk about the church in Thailand and the church in Kenya that we just went through the history there. But these were individual expressions in that larger body of people. And as they were coming together, we understand that the church is not only this universal body made up of believers who have lived and died and those who will come after us. We're all a part of the church. And that's what Ephesians is talking about here. In Ephesians 5, he's talking about the larger church at hand. In Acts chapter 9, though, he speaks of church in, in the term of region. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and 2, he speaks of church as in the city. In Romans chapter 16, verse 5, he speaks of church in the house. So whether the church is in the house or the church is in the city or the church is in the region or the church that he's speaking of is the world, there's always a context, a local expression. Now this is important to understand the context of a church. Because Grace Point Church is in a context. We're shaped by the context. We are for the context. We help transform the context one person at a time. The context in which we exist in is Northwest Arkansas. We exist in Northwest Arkansas in this context to be a light in this context. Let me tell you this, and this is a, call it a a life proposition for you.
1: And I really believe
0: this with my heart. It's going to become one of the mantras of my life, I think, from this point forward. And that is this. That the greatest gift, the greatest gift that we could give a community is to plant a church. Because no other organization or body will serve a community, body, soul, and spirit, like a church The greatest gift that we can give a community is to plant a church. Because it's the only organization that I can think of that will service the body, the soul, and the spirit. What was the very first thing that the Holy Spirit did when he came to earth? He filled the believers, Peter preached, and a church was born. The very first work the Holy Spirit does when he comes on this earth is he starts a church. So what we have got to learn and what we have got to see and what we have got to embrace is that we must be a part of what God has already called us to be a part of, not letting Satan hold us back. Let's be a part of a God thing, not a man thing. It's not about building for ourselves. It's about building and advancing His kingdom. It's about being a church and a community that whenever we leave Grace Point Church, let's say that this facility were to... We were to disband and go on our ways and it would become a a car lot. I would hope, oh, I would hope that Northwest Arkansas would grieve the passing of Grace Point Church. It would grieve the loss of our influence, positive, caring, gracious influence in the community. That when we weren't assembling together anymore, they would miss that the awe factor of when they came here, they experienced God in an awe kind of way. When you look at Ephesians again, and you just break this passage apart, you read in verse 22 how He leads the church, in verse 28 and 29 how Christ serves the church. And in verse 25, how He loves the church. You just see it again and again and again. And I want to read another verse to you. It won't be on the screen, so you just got to look down a little bit. Verse 29. And just think about it for a moment. Am I I like that? Do do I love the church like Jesus loves the church? Serving the church? Leading the church? Look at verse 29. This is is it. For, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but He nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ also does the church. Jared, if you'll come back up. I want you to think for a moment with me. Jesus literally, I said in the beginning, is madly in love with us. And we can take that very flippantly if we will. We can blow that off if we will. But I challenge us to look deep. Because Jesus... Cherishes and loves us. He cares for us. And I would compare it to something like this that if you were to say, Mike, I really like you, but Lori gets on my nerves. I can hang with you, but I don't want to hang with your wife. You know what? We might have a relationship that dates back for years and years and years and years. But now you have just driven a stake between us. You have just put a splinter, a wedge between us that now no longer can I be in relationship with you fully and completely. There's even a movement out there about how people say, "I love Jesus, but I, but I don't like the church." And what books written on it? Dan Kimball wrote a great book, They Like Jesus But Not the Church. So, for, for us to say, I love you, Mike, but not Lori. Or I love Jesus, but I don't like the church. And we're missing it. Because Jesus loves and cherishes His bride. Hey, do we need a makeover? Yeah, we do. And I think that's the heart of this series. Because there's a lot about us that from time to time becomes just flat out ugly and not right. But we must understand that God loves us with a deep and abiding love. And as you listen to this song, if you need to come and kneel here at the front and say, God, I've not been the kind of bride that you would be be pleased with. If you need somebody to pray with you, I'll be here. But think about Christ's love for you as a husband loves his bride.